0: Yeah. Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person who knows food is a basic right. And I'm really excited to report um, that the voters of Maine, they're um, the first state in the United States to add right to food to their state constitution this last week. So congratulations to the voters of Maine. Um, in studio with me today is Matt Frank. Um, Matt is with Big River Farms Market Specialist, and he's also been named a top twenty-five finalists for the emerging leaders in food and egg. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio.
1: Yeah thanks Laura. Thanks for having me back. Thanks. Excited to be here again.
0: Yeah, it's fun. So tell us again a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah. So like you mentioned currently I work at Big River Farms, which is a program of the food group. Um, a nonprofit that does hunger relief work and sustainable agriculture education, uh, focusing on both ends of the spectrum as far as food production and distribution goes, um, really focused on sustainable agriculture and, and food access and land access issues. Um, so, yeah, I serve as their market specialist at a farm called Big River Farms out in Marino and St. Croix and connect farmers in our education program there to markets for selling their organic produce.
0: Yeah, so we'll be doing a deep dive in what those farms are experiencing this year in COVID, how this is an important conversation in the age of um, global warming and climate change. But let's talk a little bit about this constitutional amendment because, I mean, one of the first things on the food group site is our work is guided by these values. Food is a basic right for all individuals.
1: Yeah, Definitely. That, that was definitely part of what drew me to the food group and to Big River Farms. It was actually something I talked about um, during my interview process. Um, but yeah, it's, I think it's a really strong um, value statement. But the question is how do we, how do we get to that, that goal, that ideal
0: well, and to really understand it because in some ways it sounds kind of like, well, food is a basic right. But I mean to really embody that idea of food as a basic right, it's not a charity. <laughs>
1: <Right>. <laughs> you know,
0: it's just – it's something – you're a human being. You're here. You get to breathe. You get water and you get food. Yes, That's yeah, exactly. part of what life is. That's – But um, but this um, so uh, but that's kind of not the way that it's actually in our society right now. I don't think that idea that food is a right. I mean, is um, is widely held.
1: Mm Hmm. Yeah. No, I I agree with that. I mean, I think if you just look at like the federal food uh, policies or the Farm Bill, that that's very clearly not reflected in those. That that food. Should be a human right and should be easily accessible, healthy healthy food. But the way that our policies are written, it's not currently.
0: No, no, and uh, yeah, and so um, in in Maine, um, do you want to talk a little bit about, about this? Because this was this is quite an interesting thing what, uh, about the constitutional yeah, I, amendment I that passed us up, last week.
1: Yeah, I just saw it pop up the other day after um, the voters in Maine had passed it um, and hadn't heard too much about it in the media or too much, didn't have too much context for it, but just came across it and thought, this is really great. This is a cool idea. It seems like it was uh, led by local communities there who wanted food to be a right and and the voters got to decide if that was something they wanted or not. So it's, it's great to see that that um, initiative took place and that people agreed with it at the voting booths.
0: Yeah. And I'm, so I'm going to read the Constitutional Amendment. Um, and uh, do you a favor amending the Constitution of Maine to declare that all individuals have a natural, inherent, and unalienable right to grow, raise, harvest, produce, and consume the food of their choosing for their own nutrition, nu- nutrition sustenance, and bodily health and well-being?
1: Mind blown! Yeah, that's it's fantastic. I mean, it's, it it reminded me of um, some of the policy language in the Twin Cities, uh, like maybe ten, twelve years back, when urban agriculture was kind of having a reemergence, mm-hmm. um, and and that being some of the language that was used in that organizing and policy work of access to food being a human right, and um, trying to give folks the agency to grow and process their own food. Directly in the city,
0: right? And so, one of the groups, uh, Rights, Rights, Not Charity. Um, I'm going to read a little bit from their site because um, there's a growth of institutionalized corporate food banking, private philanthropy, food banks, and other emergency measures that originated in the United States and became a permanent response to poverty and food insecurity, which is spreading across the globe. So, there's almost that i that idea, Mm -hmm. Um, but. What um, the Rights Not Charity says is emergency solutions have never addressed the root causes of food insecurity.
1: Yeah, I think that's 100 percent right. Um, yeah, far, I, I think far too often uh, institutional systems rely on that charity model um, and it's it's difficult to create systemic change if that's the, the main goal is to uphold the charity and um, So I think there's lots of opportunity now to dive into that further and to try and dismantle that model um, to actually create some systemic change.
0: And that's what the food group has been doing for a long
1: time. Yeah, definitely. The food group has been in that sector for decades um, and definitely has a renewed focus over the past five, ten years on, again, looking at both ends of the spectrum of food production and food distribution, um, not just solely focusing on fundraising and and grant money and uh, donating in in the charity model but focusing on empowering farmers with education, with access to land, with access to um, equipment, farm equipment, tractors um, and and various resources to empower and educate them to grow their own food for themselves and their families and their communities but also for distribution to uh, folks who have limited access because of existing state and federal policies.
0: Right, and I mean, uh, with COVID, we actually had supply chain issues uh, around food, which is very scary. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that was some really—it's scary to see some of the supply chains. And so, actually, having a local food system is so important.
1: Yeah, I think people who, you know, were just kind of going about their daily lives and didn't necessarily weren't weren't tapped into food systems work. You know, uh, it became very apparent when COVID hit that. Maybe that was something they should pay attention to. Um, I kind of saw it from a few different perspectives. Uh, when COVID started, I was working at a local food co-op in the Twin Cities as both a staff member and had run and served on their board of directors and was sitting on the board still as well. And so saw the supply chain issues from from those two perspectives um, as somebody in the grocery retail industry um, and planning for you know pandemic preparedness, worrying about you know, what if half of our staff gets sick and can't come to work or what happens if our farmers get sick? Um, farmers and producers can't continue to grow and produce or can't deliver to the store. Um, so saw it from that perspective and, you know, just the panic buying that ensued at the beginning when people were unsure about how the pandemic would impact food access and uh And then – Last May is when I started working at the Food Group in Big River Farms, um, and so transitioned, uh, you know, professional roles towards the beginning of the pandemic, and started to see the impacts, the supply chain impacts, and the growing impacts of both COVID of the pandemic and of you know the increasing, increasingly present impacts of climate change on the production side of things too, on, on not just the retail side like at the grocery store, but. Also on the on the farming side,
0: so this is so com- complex in in a lot of ways to really try to take it all in. I mean, okay, we've got climate change. We've really, as a species, we've really done a lot of damage, mm-hmm. you know, and, and to our planet, into each other, and 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 yet, um, and, and, it, and then we have this idea of food is a right, and yet. We're really depleting our soils, and you know how do we how do we start building up that system?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, um, that's that's actually something we've been focusing on for a while at Big River Farms and the Food Group, and something that we're definitely leaning more heavily into now with um, the future of the program. Um, so there's been a big shift in focus on. I mean, we're still educating farmers on how to grow organic food since we're a certified organic farm and how to um, use sustainable agriculture methods when they're producing food. But I think historically that oftentimes has focused more on production um, and sales at the cost of – you know something like soil health and soil regeneration, and so that's definitely become more of a focus of both the education curriculum for the program and just operationally um, how we, both as staff and farmers in the program, um, tend to the land at Big River Farms.
0: So, if this is the first time someone's ever heard about the food group, um, how would you describe it? What what is it?
1: Oh, it's a nonprofit um, that is focused on. Land access and sustainable agriculture education. Um, So, providing food um, to folks who, healthy food to folks who don't have access to it for, you know, one systemic reason or another based on systemic racism or um, uh, lack of privileges because of systemic racism or institutionalized oppression. Um, So, Food access uh, is a big piece of the puzzle at the food group, providing healthy food um, to folks who need it, partnering with a lot of local food shelves um, to distribute that food uh, and local partners who contribute. Um, And then specifically at Big River Farms, focusing on farmer education and empowering farmers to grow their own food. Um, Specifically at the farm, we're focused on providing support and resources to folks who Historically and, and still in the present um, are marginalized or oppressed within food and farming systems and so we're really focused on um, engaging and collaborating with and supporting farmers who are black, indigenous or people of color. Um, new American farmers, immigrants and refugees, and female farmers.
0: Awesome. And um, so we're talking with Mark uh, Matt Frank with the Food Group Minnesota, and um, we're going to be taking a break. Um, you're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Satisfy Minnesota. Satisfy my soul, baby. Satisfy
1: my soul. Sat- Please stop your life. So Welcome back to
0: Food Freedom to Radio. Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and in studio with me is Matt Frank uh, with Big River Farms Market Specialist um, and also named uh, one of the top 25 finalists for Emerging Leaders in Food and Egg. Congratulations on that.
1: Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. it.
0: Thanks. Okay, so tell us uh, where Big River Farms is and and how many acres. What does it look like?
1: Yeah, so Big River Farms is in Marino on St. Croix, just north of Stillwater by the – Um, border with Wisconsin on the St. Croix River, and we have a 150-acre farm, certified organic, um, and are based in education, Um, like I mentioned before, providing educational materials and resources and support specifically targeted towards BIPOC, New American, and female farmers um, who have been and still are disproportionately a, a very small percentage of the farmers in Minnesota and you know, just nationwide.
0: So, if we want local food, do we need local farmers?
1: Definitely, yeah. I think I think I, especially during the past two years over um, the pandemic, that's really been brought to the forefront is the need uh, to continue to support local food systems because of the resiliency that's built into them. Um, as we've seen supply chain impacts due to COVID.
0: And we've heard a lot of you know they can't find enough people can't find uh, workers right now, Mm -hmm. Um, and again, no food, no farmer, no farmers, no food. Right? Um, Is there a problem with um, too few people growing our food?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think it, it goes even further than that. I think it's based in our food system policies at a state and a federal level, and subsidizing commodity monoculture crops you know, for fuel or for cattle feed um, and not prioritizing small-scale uh, produce farmers.
0: Right. And it's it's crazy. We know that uh, diabetes used to be – what, uh, less than 1 percent of us had diabetes. Now it's over 7 percent mm-hmm. of us have diabetes and yet what's subsidized is corn syrup. Right. <laughs> I yeah. mean it doesn't make any sense. Corn syrup and soy, uh, most of those, those dollars go for just that monoculture type of culture which depletes the soil and is right. not good for pollinators. And so to try to shift that system um, is a big do- job. Right. Yeah, it's definitely.
1: Tough. Definitely. I, I think going back to your previous question too, um, because it can seem be task, uh, the focus can be on starting small scale, starting local – Supporting the folks in the community where you live um, to grow that support and to organize and mobilize from the ground up.
0: Right, and that it's almost a place base, Mm -hmm. um, connections to each other. And the person who was on last week with Forks in the Dirt, I love the way she ended the show when I said – I asked her what Food Freedom Radio was and was like, oh, that's the freedom to choose – what food you buy based on the relationship you have with the person, mm-hmm. and then the soil that they build in, and based on those types of relational. Um, so we have a relational food system yeah. as opposed to sort of the
1: commodity, transactional monoculture system. Yeah, I love that. I think that's that's right on the money. Uh, no pun intended.
0: <laughs> exactly. So so uh, talk a little bit more about how COVID um, affected um, farmers.
1: Yeah. Um, the biggest way I think was um, just market access. Um, so we saw that at the beginning of COVID last year where in the past, you know, there was, there was a decent amount of wholesale markets to connect farmers with who were in the education program at Big River Farms. So that looked like uh, public school programs that had started farm-to-school Wholesale accounts who are really prioritizing buying local and supporting local farmers, um, and connecting young students to healthy food in the cafeterias at schools. Um, it looked like wholesale accounts with other institutions like hospitals, senior living homes, um, selling direct at farmers markets. So all of those markets were, cares. were closed, yeah, um, or on hold because of COVID. Right. Um, so that that was a. A big blow initially was just the loss of all those potential opportunities for selling food. Um, but we still—the biggest market that we've had at Big River Farms for years is uh, aggregated CSA program, a community-supported agriculture program, um, which is fairly unique in the sense that it's not one farmer or one farm team growing, you know, tens of. You know, ten to fifty different types of produce for sale to to members who sign up to participate. Um, it's a we're an incubator farm, so we work with anywhere from ten to fourteen different individual farmers or farm teams on a given on a given year, and they they can all choose to opt into our community supported agriculture program, and and the benefit is as new emerging farmers. Um, who are participating in education classes and hands-on work at the farm, um, they can participate in the CSA and don't have the high risks of being a new farmer, having to take on everything themselves and can collaborate a little bit more and focus on growing produce that they're either really excited about growing, that they have um, a really strong cultural or familial connection to, or that they have experience growing in the past instead of having to – diversify and grow 50, 60 different types of crops by themselves.
0: Um I like what you just said that they have a cultural or a feeling towards. So the other problem when we talk about monoculture is that we've been sort of eating very few foods really. Mm-hmm. Especially if you put it in historical context. I mean humans as animals were eating a wider variety of food 100 um uh, several hundred years right. ago than we are currently. So that that's also important is um and, and what are can you give us some some names of some um culturally appropriate foods that are um becoming kind of up and some new trendy foods maybe I'm trying to say?
1: Yeah. Um, I think just like focusing the hyper-locally in the Twin Cities over the past, I don't know, 30, 40 years, um, you've seen the trend with uh, a lot of Hmong farmers becoming very prevalent in Minnesota. Um, And I think – I can't remember the exact statistic but I think it's something like 50 to 60 percent of the farmers who sell at all the markets, the farmers markets in the Twin Cities are Hmong American. Um, So that's had a huge impact on the types of food um, that are – that have become more prevalent in food co-ops and farmers markets and now to a certain extent at some of the big box players um, like the Targets and Walmarts. So things like – Thai chili peppers and lemongrass and Asian greens, mustard greens, um, Thai eggplant, things like that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, And when we were talking about um, global warming and climate change, um, this was a tough year in some ways and that was so hot.
1: Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. It was definitely a a rough growing season for many reasons because of of the ongoing impacts of, of covid um, but also because of the increasingly prevalent impacts of climate change. So thinking back to the beginning of this growing season, we had uh, an unusually late frost at the end of May, right. um, which impacted uh, farmers who had started seeds inside the greenhouses and the hoop houses at Big River Farms and had already transplanted those, those seedlings, those plant starts out into the field. Um, so some things that are very water loving, like tomatoes and cucumbers, didn't survive that frost. So that was kind of the first the first thing that we saw. And then immediately following that, the first week in June, we had a record breaking heat wave for a week straight of 90 to 100 degree weather, um, which of course impacted brand new plant starts that were being put into the field as well. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so I mean so it was a tough year and you think about someone who goes through all that trouble of growing food and then they don't sell it I mean that is actually a real challenge yeah. um, and again if we want local food we need local farmers making a wonderful living um, and we need vital soil so we're gonna take a break and when we'll be back we'll talk more with Matt Frank from the Minnesota from the Food Group Minnesota. <laughs> Prudence, come out to play. Be all, let's all be prudent and come out and play. And um, so, uh, you're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950. I'm Laura Headline, and in studio with me is Mike, is Matt Frank, uh, the the Food Group MN, also named uh, uh, recently named a top 25 finalist for emerging leaders in food and egg. So, welcome back. And so, when we went on break, we were talking with uh, about the 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 difficulty not in growing food, but also bringing it to market and selling it
1: right yeah um, that's definitely something we focus on um, at both the food group and at big river farms is market access um, for beginning farmers um, because if you have the education and even if you have the education and the land and the resources the tools to grow the food that next step really is where are you going to sell it um, so market access is a big is a big piece of the puzzle for um, beginning farmers starting out.
0: When I still remember talking with one of my friends, everyone should grow a little bit of food just to know what's involved in it. Mm -hmm. I mean if it's a plant on the counter, just have some type of plant because it offers – it creates so much appreciation for all the work that does go into producing food. But I think of that person harvesting all that food, doing all that work, getting to that stage and then there's no customers and then they're bringing back that food without selling it and Mm -hmm. that has got to be heart-wrenching.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's that's one of the the many variables and difficulties of of small scale produce farming.
0: Right, and um, and so uh, how is climate change affecting the small scale farming here in our area?
1: Oh, it's it's impacting it quite a bit. Um, everything from you know the weather throughout the season, um, it's impacting when we can grow food, the types of food that we can grow. Um, it's it's shifting a lot
0: yeah and I mean um, food is also a solution to the climate crisis. Um, you agree on that?
1: yeah, I would agree
0: okay. How can food help us um, repair the damage we've caused to the planet?
1: Oh, like we mentioned before, I think uh, starting with soil health is a huge a huge piece of that puzzle um, focusing on regenerating soil health, um, improving soil health, and retaining soil health um, because that's really like the life force of healthy food and a healthy environment. Um, is the soil, the basis of of healthy food and healthy life.
0: And we think about the commodity and how the money works. That's not rewarded in our system. What's rewarded in our system is to drain every last ounce out of that soil to make money right now. That's what's rewarded in the system. And so – and that's even what's funded by our tax dollars in the farm bill.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's very extractive. A very extractive system based in free market capitalism and commoditizing uh, the earth and the food that we eat.
0: Right. And so – and yet – how do – I mean how do we untangle ourselves from that system?
1: Oh, I think it starts with education. Um, There's all sorts of avenues that it could look like um, from community organizing to education to um, mutual aid efforts, cooperative systems of uh, farming, um, cooperative land access, land trusts. Um, it's just it's just viewing things through a different ideological lens than the way we've currently been operating.
0: Yeah, ideological and mythology wise, mm-hmm. which is which is I'm going to go back to what we talked about in that first segment. Is um, the state of Maine the voters um, approved the first right to food, and they they put right to food in their state constitution?
1: Yeah, which is fabulous. It Start is recognizing that.
0: Right to food and so – and some of the um, ramifications of having the right to food in their constitution is also right to collect seeds.
1: Mm, yeah, that's huge.
0: And I don't – I mean I um, people can go on the website and do their own research but I was just kind of looking at some of the stuff from the, that right to food movement in Maine and they were talking about who – some of the people who are opposed to this measure and some of them had an economic interest in the current – system that we have.
1: Yeah, shocker.
0: You know, I know, I know. It's just kind of well why why would you not want to yeah, and and yeah, shocker.
1: <laughs> yeah, it all it all comes back to money and power, right?
0: I know, but why does it come back to money and power all the time?
1: Oh, well because I think that's the way we've operated as a country since our founding, right? Yeah. White yeah. white supremacists, patriarchal free market capitalism.
0: Yeah, um, I'm going to take a jump here and I, I was debating about whether I wanted to say this. But on on Halloween night, I saw a shooting star and it was a wonderful view, beautiful view of a shooting star. I'd never seen one that close before. And, and I, so I was like, oh, what should I wish for? You know, and, and I realized what I really wanted to wish for was atmosphere, improved atmosphere mm-hmm. because we are so – there's just so much charged up here and how do we calm ourselves down with yep. so many – I mean, we are in the sixth mass extinction of the planet. We have a climate crisis. We don't know what the next generation is. And um, in our mythology, um, we, we were, I was raised on it's always going to have a happy ending. So it's almost like we're not present to what other people are experiencing mm-hmm. right now. And so how do we improve these atmospheres? And I think that if people knew and experienced food as a right and just trusted – that we actually would have a food system, I think the atmospheres would improve. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. um, Yeah, going off of the metaphor you just said, I mean I think the the social and political climate and atmosphere is so charged right now um, that we need to take a step back um, and come back to some sort of shared sense of humanity and community like you were mentioning earlier. Um, I think a lot of the ways that we live in this country are – Disconnecting us from community and from relationship building with other folks, uh, specifically other people who maybe don't share the same class status or the same race or the same political views, um, the same income level. So I think that's that's a place to start to bring folks back together in community.
0: And food, food is a, food has been a home to that type of community.
1: Definitely, yeah. Food is food is very communal, and food can also be very political. So. I you know, it's. I think it makes sense that the movement is food as a right um, because it's something we all share and something we can't survive without.
0: And uh, food as a right is a global movement. Right. And um, it, it's a global movement right now. Um, I want to just back up a little bit and, and share more information about the food group because, sure. like, you have the program Fear for All. Um, so, tell people about how that program works.
1: Yeah, so in addition to Big River Farms, the food group runs a few other programs. Fair for All is one of them. Um, it's a um, a system of pop-up markets um, that provides food to folks outside of the Twin Cities uh, at discounted retail rates. Um, and so that shifted over the past couple years because of COVID too. Um instead of providing pop-up markets where folks could come and shop for their own food, it, it took more of a drive-through model last year. I think it started to revert a little bit more to the the previous model um, but yeah it's basically pop-up markets to provide healthy food to folks who might have limited access to it outside of the Twin Cities.
0: and then another program is the mobile market.
1: yeah Twin Cities mobile market a similar program but focused on um, providing food healthy food to folks directly in the Twin Cities. Uh, So that stemmed out of a program that was started maybe five or six years ago by the Wilder Foundation, another large local nonprofit, um, that turned uh, metro transit buses that weren't on the road anymore into mobile grocery stores. Um, So tearing out the seats in those and outfitting them with shelving and storage and bringing healthy food to folks who have either limited mobility issues um, or – issues accessing healthy food directly to them, to places in Minneapolis and St. Paul. So there's, I think, currently maybe 20, 25 different sites that the bus travels through throughout the cities focused on um, senior living homes, low-income apartments, um, and just like I said, areas where people have limited access to healthy food.
0: And if people want any more information about the food group, they can go to your website and that website yep. address is?
1: The foodgroupmn.org.
0: Great. And talk a little bit about your personal background because you got named this – and this is pretty hot. This is great. One of the emerging leaders in food and eggs. So talk a little bit about your personal background.
1: Yeah, my personal background. Um, Where to begin? I I was just telling a story. We had a team meeting this morning with folks at the farm about our first experience with soil and that That struck a chord with me, just thinking about my connection to soil um, and, like I mentioned, our current conversations about soil health and focusing more on that aspect of farming. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think it all began when I was probably five or six. I lived in a suburb of Chicago down the block from a community farm um, and have vivid memories of walking there with my parents and being invited by folks who garden there to pick things off of the vine and eat cherry tomatoes and eat fresh from the garden. So I've always had an interest and a connection to the environment and to food and to soil. That's where it kind of all began. Um, Educationally, I went to the University of Minnesota for undergraduate studies and was in an environmental design program, a little bit more focused on landscape architecture, urban planning, and geography. Um, And that's when I really started digging into Systems design and um, sustainable landscaping, um, edible gardening, things like that. Uh, and after graduating, continued to pursue that and got more interested in permaculture um, and uh, social systems. Um, so yeah, pro- professionally, I've worked. I worked for about seven, eight years at a nonprofit called Dovetail Partners in Minneapolis, doing environmental education and research. Uh, and everyone on the team there had a, a kind of niche area of focus, and I specifically focused on urban agriculture uh, and urban forestry and food production. So that was kind of my jump into learning a lot more about policies in the Twin Cities that were happening at the time around urban agriculture, um, and, and zooming out, you know, state statewide and nationally, kind of seeing that reemergence of urban agriculture movements.
0: Right, and both of us, you and I, both participate in PRI Cold Climate um, on the permaculture stuff. So, um, if someone hadn't heard about permaculture, how would you describe it?
1: Oh, I have a love love hate relationship with permaculture. Really? Um, Okay, cool. But I think it's just because of personal experience. Um, I think the the go to is that permaculture is this ideology of systems design for both. Food systems and living, just bigger picture, social systems, food systems, the way that we interact with the land and with each other, mm-hmm. um, and so the go-to description is, you know, permaculture. What does that mean? Where did that word come from? And I've heard that it's a combination of permanent agriculture, um, you know, which focuses more on perennial production, um, on whole systems thinking, um, on how what we're growing and how we're doing it is impacting the land and the world around us um, and our relationships to each other, but also permanent culture, really focusing on our connection, our relationships with each other.
0: Right. Um, Yeah. So I I love, uh, I actually have hazelnuts in our yard, a peach tree and blueberries and um, hazelnuts and uh, gooseberries and even some goji berries. And so that's that's. But, um, but you're listening to Food Freedom Radio, and we're talking with Matt Frank um, with the Minnesota Food Group. Group. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap and someone who knows food is a basic human right. It's our birthright. (laughs) It's our birthright. In studio with us is we've been talking with Matt Frank with the the Food Group Minnesota, MN. And before we went on break, you were saying you have a love-hate relationship with permaculture. Okay, so where's the hate part?
1: Maybe hate is too strong of a word, but um – It stems from my connection to permaculture in the Twin Cities and working for a permaculture nonprofit, serving on their board, um, and also traveling to the West Coast to take part in a two-week intensive permaculture design certification program. Um, So just my relationship with the idea of permaculture over years – also I I taught some intro to permaculture classes and wrote a report for that nonprofit I mentioned earlier on kind of the 101 of permaculture design and theory. Um, But where the love-hate piece comes up is in that experience over the past decade, I've noticed in the – at least, in, I don't know, I can't speak to nationwide or even statewide, but locally within the Twin Cities um, and to a certain extent in my experience out west, I felt like permaculture very much centered whiteness in its teachings um, while ignoring a lot of the indigenous roots of what they were teaching, especially around the origin story of permaculture, of mm-hmm. it being something that was developed by to white men in Australia in the 70s. So that was a big piece. Of- in
0: South America, according to Charles C. Mann, um, in the 1500s, um, people were raising 600 different types of potatoes. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah, permaculture is not something that was invented in the 70s. Right.
1: right. Yeah, that's, that's, that's where the quote-unquote hate piece comes in for me is – just the way that it's framed and presented. Um, and also, I, this this doesn't – again, this is – hate is too strong of a word. But um, some contentions have popped up for me within the, the, the permaculture scene. In I think in, in kind of in tandem with the increasing polarization of our social and political structures, I've seen that reflected in the permaculture scene too, of there being two very distinct kind of groups of people who identify – with permaculture as an idea. Folks who are very anti-government, anti-big brother for lack of a better term, who want to implement permaculture and who have a certain amount of privilege and access to land or money um, and who want to move to a remote piece of land outside of the cities to homestead and and start their own property that's self-sustaining which is great if you have the privilege to do that. But again, I think that ignores – the other side of the spectrum in the permaculture role that I've seen, which is folks who want to create systemic change from the inside out within cities and within existing urban systems, and using the the ideas and the the values of permaculture to create some change and to bring back connections to um, the land and to food within cities.
0: Well. I don't know if I'm going to be able to say this, but when I comment on like having the right atmospheres too often in our species, we want to reduce things. It's just, it's just something we do because we're in a, like a kid thing. It's like, we we just kind of reduce them so fast for me. Permaculture means hazelnuts Mm -hmm. (laughs) instead of, instead of corn and soy, Yep. (laughs) you know, hazelnuts and chickens and, but, but it's also very individualized and, Mm -hmm. you know, everything Mm -hmm. is, we're also individual. Um, and, uh, but I also want to kind of talk more about this constitutional amendment because, um, and so, the state of Maine last week, voters voted um, to um, to say food is a right. I'm going to read that amendment. They were asked voters were asked, and it overwhelmingly passed. Do you favor amending the Constitution of Maine to declare all that all individuals have a natural, inherent, and unalienable right to to grow, raise, harvest, produce, and consume the food of their choosing for their own for their own sustenance? And well-being, and it's like this. The ramifications of this are actually quite intense. I mean, there's a lot of interesting things that come up with that. For instance, um, and some people have been saying, "No, you must have monoculture grass. Mm -hmm. You cannot grow food in your yard." And the way I would read that in the Constitution is like, "I'm entitled to grow vegetables in my front yard." now. Yeah,
1: it's my right. It's been it's been defined in the Constitution as my as one of my human rights. Yeah. Going yeah. back to what we were just talking about too, I think um, it will be it'll be interesting to see how things are framed with this constitutional right to, f- to food as a right, um, thinking about centering whiteness and institutionalized systems again. Um, I think some of the articles I was reading after it passed in Maine the other day um, threw in the term food sovereignty, which has been kind of a buzzword lately in mainstream media. It's been gaining more traction. Um, but again, something that's been around for decades and decades and is from, – from my understanding, is based in indigenous culture and indigenous movements to regain access to land and resources um, that was taken away from them when America became a country.
0: Yeah, and, and w- when people don't have food – and with, we've talked about, um, the climate crisis and, um, different parts of the world that are on the front lines of what's happening. Uh, there's a lot of heartbreaking, um, heartbreakingness around what humans have done to our planet. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that, it, that, that if we look at food as a basic right, how our decisions have been affecting each other's basic rights in, in a global way. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah, I think it goes back to um what we were discussing at the beginning of the conversation too, as far as um how our food systems have been shaped and what the priorities have been um so it seems like there's more of a movement now locally, nationally, and globally to give people so to say right mm-hmm. like give people more of an agency or people taking more wanting to take more agency back on their connection to the land and connection to food.
0: And that's the whole point of the co-op movement. Right. That's where it started is to have more agency over over food and you know and if we can figure out the food piece I am confident that everything else will just kind of fall into fall place. Fall into place. Yeah, yeah. We'll solve everything else. Everything else I hope I hope. Um, so tell us again um, this this whole um, – we haven't talked too much about um, being named a finalist for the Emerging Leaders in Food and Ag. What is that group and what type of work does it do?
1: Oh, My understanding is that it's a fairly new organization or at least the Emerging Farmers in, in, in um, Food and Ag is fairly new, the award piece of the puzzle. Um, I think this is only the second year that they've hosted um, this awards uh, program, but it's part of a larger um, group that does uh, investment fundraising and hosts events and does some multimedia work um, focused on regenerative agriculture and trying to uplift the voices and, the, and support the work of folks in that movement
0: right because okay like there are four companies um, are controlling what 80 90% of the beef in the United States mm-hmm. just as an example so most of the food and most of that supply issue it's really a few people owning the food system right. And and so where is it emerging that people are doing their own ownership of their food system and, and creating that and how we spread that out?
1: Yeah, it'll be great to, to partner with some of the folks who are nominated as emerging leaders. Um, that's, that's what I'm really excited about is the potential to uh, – Build relationships and to work with those folks too on some exciting changes.
0: Yeah, let's just changes Look at that love life, Crowley. Let's have a food system based on relationships. Yes. So, Mad Frank, um, working with the Food Group MN and you've been listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM nine fifty.